Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. As a surgical resident, you are dedicated to mastering your craft. Logging cases shouldn't slow you down. Introducing Unera, streamlined, intuitive, and efficient. With a quick 20-second process, effortlessly log cases and utilize advanced AI for precise CPT code suggestions. Unera's sophisticated interface also ensures ACGME requirements are always at your fingertips. Unera is developed exclusively for residents and is completely free of charge. Elevate your case logs. Download Unera today. That's U-N-I-R-A, Unera. Hi, everyone. We're the Surgical Palliative Care Team from the University of Washington. We're so excited to join Behind the Knife and build on the discussion about this important subspecialty. Since this is our first episode, let's start by introducing the team. My name is Ali Haruta. I did my general surgery training at UW and Trauma Critical Care Fellowship at Parkland. I'm currently a palliative care fellow, and it's really exciting to see how much support it's been gaining within surgical fields. I'm joined by two of my resident colleagues, Lindsay and Virginia, and our attending, Dr. O'Connell. I'll let you guys introduce yourselves. I'm Lindsay Dickerson, a PGY-5 general surgery resident and current surgical oncology research fellow. A particular interest of mine is how to incorporate palliative care tenets into surgical oncology, and I'm leading a study exploring how surgeons discuss pancreatic cancer prognosis with patients. And I'm Virginia Wang, a general surgery PGY-2. I've had an interest in palliative care since medical school. And while I haven't decided on a surgical subspecialty yet, I am particularly interested in health equity and the delivery of surgical care, including palliative care, in under-resourced settings. Lastly, I'm Katie O'Connell, an assistant professor of surgery at the University of Washington and director of surgical palliative care at Harborview Medical Center. I'm board certified in general surgery, surgical critical care, and hospice and palliative medicine. I work at Harborview as a trauma surgeon and palliative care physician where I founded the Advanced Care Planning for Surgery Clinic. I developed a communication skills curriculum for the General Surgery Residency Program at UW, and I'm vice co-chair of the AAST Palliative Care Committee. Thanks, Dr. O'Connell. It's not an overstatement to say I've learned almost everything I know about integrating palliative care from you. So now that we've met the team, let's talk about why surgeons should care about palliative care. Dr. O'Connell, can you get us started? Sure. Palliative care is a medical specialty with expertise in communication strategies, shared medical decision-making, and relief of all types of suffering. Surgeons are uniquely positioned at crossroads for patients, bearing serious news, performing curative surgeries, and providing end-of-life care. Part of our responsibility as surgeons is to figure out what is important to patients in their current state and use our expertise to provide treatment recommendations that are goal concordant. Sometimes that includes recommending medical treatments over surgical treatment options. Bearing the burden of uncertainty in these situations is difficult, and I'm passionate about empowering young surgeons to learn how to make non-operative treatment recommendations for patients near the end of life. That's great. I totally agree, and I think that sentiment applies across the board to different surgical subspecialties. So let's get started. Our goal for this series is to talk more about integrating palliative care into surgical practices and share some concrete skills to help us do so. 
Right. Just like surgery, communication is a skill that requires practice, and it's helpful to have multiple options in your toolkit when one technique isn't working. In the last Clinical Challenges episode, Drs. Hoffman, Cooper, and Stastny discussed non-beneficial surgery and its contributing factors, as well as our responsibility as surgeons to not function merely as technicians, but to shape our surgical culture. Thanks, Lindsay. In this episode, we'll focus on best communication practices and highlight pearls and pitfalls to having serious news conversations with patients near the end of life, as well as other care team members. Let's start with a challenging case of a patient with a necrotizing soft tissue infection. Virginia, can you give us some background on this case? Sure. This is a 61-year-old male with several recent hospitalizations from decompensated heart failure and pulmonary hypertension, along with intermittent IV drug use and homelessness. He had two days of left arm pain, was found down, and on arrival to the ED was in combined septic and cardiogenic shock with multi-system organ failure, including respiratory failure, liver failure, and renal failure. He was admitted to the MICU on two pressors and dobutamine, but not intubated. His exam was concerning for an NSCI that involved his entire left upper extremity and likely the chest wall. Surgical treatment would involve a shoulder disarticulation, chest wall excisional debridement, and multiple subsequent surgeries. Surgical treatment would also entail prolonged critical illness requiring multiple life-sustaining treatments. Okay, let's pause there for a minute. I think this scenario is familiar to many of us where you have a super sick patient facing a morbid operation. Without surgery, they'll likely die, and with an extensive operation, they're still very likely to die. So Virginia, can you share your thoughts as the surgery resident first receiving this consult? Of course. This patient has a serious infection that has made him critically ill and led to multi-organ failure. On top of this acute problem, his total illness burden is high, and his baseline state of health is poor. It would be easy for us to say, all right, his arm is infected, he requires an amputation, especially with the added time pressure to make decisions quickly because of how sick he is. Uh, as the junior surgery residency in this consult, the question I'm asking myself is, should we even include surgery as a treatment option if we're worried it won't benefit the patient? I agree. It can be really tough, and especially as a trainee, I found it incredibly difficult and uncomfortable to not offer surgery, especially when there isn't a good non-operative alternative. So, Dr. O'Connell, can you share some insight on how you think through a case like this? Sure. First of all, it's important to recognize when patients who have a surgical disease are actively dying. I think of it like the lethal triad in trauma. Once the horse is out of the barn, surgical intervention is not going to change the ultimate outcome. Surgeons are not obligated to offer surgery that is potentially non-beneficial, and we certainly want to avoid surgical treatment at the end of life. The three questions I use to mentally navigate this type of surgical decision-making are one, is the patient at the end of life? Two, will a surgery change the ultimate outcome for the patient? And three, what is the risk, high, medium, or low, that surgery would prolong the dying process and lead to more suffering? If the fellow and or resident answers that they think the patient is at the end of life, that surgery will not change the ultimate outcome, and that surgical intervention would likely lead to prolongation of the dying process and cause more suffering, the decision becomes more clear. If the decision is made not to offer surgical intervention, the next step is communication with the consulting team, followed by the patient and family unit. It is important to recognize going into this conversation that nine times out of 10, the patient and family have not been informed 
that they are at the end of life, and you will be disclosing this as serious news. Allie, can you walk us through how to prepare disclosing serious news to patients? Yeah, so first I mentally prepare my headline statement, and I want to discuss the take-home message with other members of the team so we appear as a united front. I make a point to engage in social courtesies like knocking, sitting down, introducing myself, etc., which might seem trivial in the moment, but can really affect the perception of the team and drive the tone of the conversation from the get-go. So once I've set a trusting environment, hearing where the patient is at is a great way to start. Sometimes they really surprise me with their answers and it totally changes the course of the conversation I was planning to have. And it's definitely saved me from putting my foot in my mouth a couple of times. Lindsay, I've found that sometimes asking patients what their understanding is can feel like a test. So as you've started to have more of these conversations, have you found phrasing that feels more comfortable to you? Yeah, I usually try to phrase that question as something like, so I know where to start. What have other doctors told you or what have you learned so far about what's going on? This takes the pressure off patients to have the right answer and usually gives you as the provider a sense of how much or how little they understand about their current situation, as well as where they are emotionally in terms of coping with the illness. The trajectory of the rest of the conversation depends on how they respond. Sometimes patients completely understand the extent of their illness and what treatment would look like, have discussed this with their family, thought about their wishes clearly, and come to you asking to transition to comfort-focused care. But in this case, the patient tells you, well, I know I'm sick, but I'll do whatever I have to do. I'm ready for surgery, doc. Thanks, Lindsay. I think this type of response is pretty common. The patient has a general understanding of the problem, but the severity and likely outcome hasn't been totally appreciated. As is often the case, our patient was informed of a surgical consultation and was anticipating operative intervention. Dr. O'Connell, how do you as the surgeon backtrack to disclose the serious news knowing that you don't have the solution the patient is hoping for? A couple of hints to unpack here. First, deliver the serious news with a headline statement that is to the point without medical jargon. This should provide a big picture view. In our case, an example of a headline statement is, the infection in your arm is so advanced that your heart, lungs, liver, and kidneys are failing. At this point, surgery is not going to fix all of the organs failing or change that you are at the end of life. In other cases, when there is more prognostic uncertainty, this can be acknowledged with an I'm worried, followed by stating what is known. An example of this would be, I'm worried that your daughter will have permanent deficits from the traumatic brain injury and that she will require assistance in activities of daily living for the rest of her life. Following disclosure of serious news, it is important to build in a period of silence to allow for emotional responses from the patient and family. Yeah, sitting in silence and responding to emotion are two things that make many surgeons very uncomfortable. In a later episode, we'll talk more about nurse statements. Nurse is a mnemonic, which stands for naming, understanding, respecting, supporting, and exploring statements. Be ready to respond to a range of emotional responses. Now, a word from our sponsor, Unera. Residency is busy, insanely busy. There are so many tasks vying for your time. For me, one of the most painful was logging cases. I, for one, always wish for an app designed with residents in mind to make tracking my milestones easier. Unera is just that. 
the best app for case logging. Think about it. Why should it take 90 seconds to log a case? With Unera, you can do it in less than 20. That's more time for patients and more time for learning. And finding the right CPT code, Unera's AI-powered search function does the legwork. No more second guessing and no more time wasted endlessly scrolling through options. Yeah, and Unera also syncs seamlessly with ACGME. No need to duplicate efforts. Plus, with Unera, staying on top of ACGME requirements is no longer a challenge. Unera's sleek interface keeps tracking your progress in real time. Best of all, Unera is free for residents to download and use. If you're a resident and want to streamline your case logging, visit unera.io. That's U-N-I-R-A dot I-O. Or download the Unera app. So let's say in this case, the patient pauses for a minute and says, well, I really just want the surgery anyway. I'll be honest, it's tempting to say, okay, and just book the case. Dr. Connell, how might you respond to this? A tip here is to use the ask-tell-ask framework, which can be helpful to delineate the patient's goals. The first ask is along the lines of, I'm hearing you want to proceed with surgery. Can you tell me what you are hoping for? In this case, he says, well, they told me you might have to cut my arm off, which I hope you don't have to, but the pain is so bad, I just want it to go away, and I think it'll be better after surgery. Lindsay, what might the tell part sound like next? Well, this might include a reflection or empathic statement to show that we hear his response from the initial ask before transitioning into the tell part. For example, you could say, it sounds like the pain has been causing you suffering and that pain relief is your main priority. The tell then could be, I'm worried that surgery will not help relieve your pain and will prolong your suffering. We have a treatment option called intensive comfort-focused treatments that would prioritize your pain control and relief of suffering above all else. The final ask is then circling back to say something like, what are your initial thoughts about this? Allowing the patient to share any concerns or ask questions. Well, the patient responds with, are you telling me I'm going to die? This question gives every surgeon pause with regard for how to compassionately respond in that moment. The key here is to recognize that the question is actually an emotional cue, not really a request for more information. An empathic response to the question, are you telling me I'm going to die, is something like, I truly wish I had better news for you, followed by a period of silence. Once the patient has indicated they are ready to hear more, a description of intensive comfort-focused care is warranted. Virginia, how do you describe comfort-focused treatments to patients and families? In some ways, the description is like a pitch. I start with all of the treatments included in comfort-focused treatment, as opposed to starting off with the things not provided. For example, intensive comfort-focused treatments include higher doses of pain medications to control your pain, anti-anxiety medications, and prioritizing loved ones at the bedside for the time that we have left. We offer support from chaplain services and activities such as clay handprinting or voice recording to ensure legacy building. We discontinue interventions that cause discomfort, such as tubes and lines, and avoid procedures like blood draws and imaging studies. I think it's important to comment here that you don't have to do everything in one conversation. So in this case, we've delivered serious news using multiple skills and introduced comfort-focused care and can reconvene later with the patient and their family to discuss their questions around the dying process. This gives the patient a chance to process the news and their emotions and talk with loved ones 
and offers you as the surgeon the opportunity to involve palliative care specialists or other team members if the patient is amenable. Virginia, can you help us wrap up the patient side of the case? Sure. So using the communication skills we discussed, we explained to our patient that he was dying from the infection. We did not recommend surgery and instead recommended that we focus his treatment plan on intensive pain control and spending time with his family. He expressed understanding of this and was joined by his wife and caretaker. Jointly, the decision was made to make him DNR-DNI, and he agreed that he wanted to prioritize treating his severe arm pain and anxiety. We explained what the dying process would look like, and he was transitioned to comfort focus measures. I want to reiterate for the listeners that decisions to not offer surgery are the most difficult part of our job as surgeons. These are the ones that keep you up at night. Becoming more comfortable deciding not to operate does take experience. Experience to recognize when a patient is dying, to understand when the dying process isn't reversible with surgery, and to avoid non-beneficial treatments at the end of life, and to communicate this clearly and empathically. But no matter how experienced you are, these cases are still difficult, and it's normal to feel uncomfortable with the uncertainty of it all. Thanks, Dr. O'Connell. I do think it's important for us as trainees to hear that these conversations are hard, and that's okay. I just wanted to add that the specific language can make a big difference. For example, I try to avoid saying patients aren't surgical candidates because it puts the blame on the patient. Instead, I try phrasing it like, we don't think there is a surgery that will help you, to emphasize that we're avoiding non-beneficial surgery rather than withholding viable treatment options. And similarly, I try to avoid saying things like, there's nothing else we can do or we're withdrawing care, which makes it appear to families like we're giving up. Even though we don't have life-prolonging treatments to offer, there are still many things we can do. And here we've helped to elicit what's bothering the patient most and shift our focus to addressing his symptoms. In my mind, these phrases we've mentioned aren't meant to be recited like a script at every family meeting. Having multiple responses that you've practiced until they become natural gives you an arsenal of communication skills to make these tough conversations a little less awkward, so you can build genuine rapport with patients instead of focusing on bubbling through the words. Now, sometimes the conversation with the patients goes relatively smoothly, but there's a disconnect with the other care teams. Right. In this case, the MICU initially saw an infection without source control and were frustrated that surgical debridement was not being offered. Especially as a junior resident, I feel pressure to appease the consulting team, and once the surgery train is in motion, it can be very difficult to stop the momentum of moving toward the OR. The first thing I would do in this situation is bump it up to somebody more senior than myself. Dr. Quannell, as the surgery attending, how do you navigate this interdisciplinary conflict? There is often pressure from the consulting team to intervene surgically for dying patients with surgical diseases. I find it helpful to get a second opinion from one or two of my partners, a third opinion from the anesthesiologist on call, and make sure to document the multidisciplinary decision-making. This takes a lot of effort and time and usually is unfolding in the middle of the night, but it is key to making decisions that are patient-centered while also being mindful of the moral distress these decisions can cause amongst the care team members. Allie and Lindsay, what are your thoughts? Well, as we've discussed, it's such a difficult part of our job to be the ones to say no to the treatment option that is sometimes viewed as the last hope for patients. In terms of how to communicate this with the consulting team, it can be helpful to clarify what they're requesting 
almost like ask to last. Because sometimes they agree that surgery is unlikely indicated, but are consulting you as the surgeon to have that conversation with the patient. I also find that asking the consulting team to be present for this conversation can help everyone be on the same page more quickly. This can also lead to the patient feeling like the treatment plan is coming from a united front rather than from two teams that are giving competing recommendations. Yeah, and it sounds to me like another moral here is that peer and senior support is super important regardless of training level, and that sometimes it's up to us as surgeons at any level to be the ones to ask the team to pause, reevaluate in the context of the patient, and have the tough conversation that maybe takes the patient in a different direction. Well, I think we've covered a lot of things today. So, Lindsay, can you wrap us up with some key points about communication when surgery at the end of life is deemed potentially non-beneficial? Sure. So first, recognize when surgery will not change the outcome of the disease and that sometimes surgeons are called upon to help patients die with less suffering. Second, acknowledge that these conversations are extremely difficult and are essential to whole person surgical care. Third, develop communication skills like the Ask Tell Ask framework, direct and jargon-free headline statements for delivering serious news, and nurse statements for responding to emotion the latter of which we'll explore more in a later episode. Finally, use language that is direct, yet caring, and precise. There's a big difference between saying, there's nothing more we can do, and we don't think that surgery will help you, but there are still many things that we can do for you. Well, thanks everyone for walking through that case with us. We're looking forward to continuing the surgical palliative care discussions. We'll see you next time, and don't forget to dominate the day. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day.